0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: Welcome to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. I'm Scott Greenberg, also known as The Vine Guy. In this podcast, we'll delve into the world of wine with winemakers, wine producers, wine professionals, and wine lovers. We'll even sample a few wines and share which ones we think are worth your while. Now, a little bit about me. I'm just an enthusiastic wine consumer who's been lucky enough to write a syndicated wine column for several years, participate as a wine judge, and for the last 10 years, host the weekly Wine of the Week segment on WTOP News in Washington, D.C. In this week's episode, I chat with Matt Crofton. He's the head winemaker at the esteemed Napa Valley Estate, Chateau Montalena. He actually grew up here in the D.C. area, and now he's living out there. Living my dream, that's for sure. So how did this economics major make a living in wine? We'll chat about that. We'll also talk to him about how Chateau Montalena is working towards the future. And Matt says there's no money in Riesling, but Chateau Montalena makes it anyway. Learn why in my interview with Matt Crofton. Now, let me share a little bit with you about Matt, and then I'll let him take it over. But Matt uh, joined Chateau Montalena in 2008, initially joining the team as an assistant winemaker, but... Since 2014, he's overseen all of the production and operations at Chateau Montalena, so he's kind of the head poobah, head winemaker, and he really brings a lot of improvements to both the vineyard and the cellar, which I want to hear about a little bit. And Matt really strives, what I love about this is Matt strives to create classically styled wines that are an expression of the unique terroir and of each vintage. A lot of winemakers, they want everything to taste the same year to year to year, or vineyard to vineyard to vineyard, but not you, right? So here we go. Now, Matt's a pretty you know modest guy, so I'm just going to tell you that he graduated at the top of his class from UC Davis with a BS in viticulture and etiology. And this is impressive, Matt, from the University of Virginia, Wahoo, (laughs) with a BA in economics. For those of you who don't know, UVA, big school out here on the East Coast. So let's kick this off with, how did an East Coast guy like you end up in a winery like that?
0: Thanks for having me today, Scott. This is really the highlight of my day. Uh, wow. We only have 20 minutes, so I'll endeavor to be brief. I, um, I'm from out here originally, born in Virginia, and uh, grew up actually right across the river in Annandale. actually went to high school in Potomac, not far from where we are right now, so uh, I'm definitely a local boy. And uh, yep, went to Uni- University of Virginia, graduated in 2003 with a degree in economics, and Now, here we are, 15-plus years later, and I am making wine on the West Coast at an amazing, wonderful winery. Uh, I'd say that, for me, this was kind of a quest that it took a long time to figure out. It was the combination of um, a lot of hard work, a lot of thought. But if you were to ask my mom and dad, I think they'd tell you that I was a really curious kid. I was always asking why. And now that I have a couple little boys and a baby girl, I'm getting paid back for that right now. (laughs) And... At the time I think when we were going through high school I went to a wonderful high school here at The Heights in Potomac where they really cultivated well. you know yeah, that Absolutely. They cultivated that that curiosity and creativity. Uh, when I got to UVA uh, I started studying economics cuz I was good at it uh, but I think I kind of may have lost that um, that drive that that curiosity and creativity that I think we really need to nurture better in our young people. And for me upon graduation I didn't want to go into finance. I thought that I needed more right brain sensibility in my life. And for whatever reason, uh, winemaking just seemed like an amazing thing to try. When you're 22, who cares, right?
1: Did you grow up as a wine drinker? Was there wine in your household? your mom and dad have wine at dinner?
0: I wish we had a great, I wish I had a real awesome answer. Like, yes, we had first growth Bordeaux every night. But no, actually, my dad doesn't drink at all. And (laughs) my mom doesn't partake very much either. I think it was just the concept of... Of, of, there's a there's a scientific component of this. There's an art component of this. There's nature, which I love. I've always been an outdoorsy person. And um, one of my favorite authors, uh, Walter Isaacson, talks about how uh, you know the artistic side of life is what drives your curiosity, and the science side is what drives the creativity that allows you to to take something abstract and make it real.
1: And, but but there had to be something though, Matt. I mean, there had to be some click. You you, you just don't go from economics to getting. You know, UC Davis, sure, right? <laughs> well, there's a lot going in into between. viticultural and enology, and graduating top of your class. Now, and, and there's a lot of science classes
0: there are there involved are. in this. And there so, are. I'd say winemaking is really kind of a three-legged stool. There's the the science side is really important. The viticulture, this is the grape growing side, is really critical. And then the artistic, the magic side. And so, you can you can't really have a can't be a well-rounded great winemaker without understanding all three of those new magic was involved there's always is magic <laughs> whether anyone tells you or not but for me i think you know my, my first job interview coming out of uva i uh, i was actually dressed for a finance interview and i go meet this winemaker in williamsburg virginia a very nice uh intelligent winemaker a guy named matt Mayer, who's still there and i think he sat across the table from me looking at me you know in a suit and shine shoes and he's in a t-shirt and jeans and He says, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here for a seller job, and I have no experience, and I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm young, I'm strong, I'm fit, and I'm willing to learn. And so he told me that he was going to throw every difficult job at me for two weeks, and he said, by then, you'll know if you can actually make it, and here we are. The rest, as they say, is history. It is. And speaking of history, now you're at Chateau
1: Montalina. You're at the helm. What's going on there these days? You know, I mean, that's you talk about history. You, you, and I do want to touch on this. I do want to touch on it, – it. it's not necessarily the thing that made Chateau Montalena famous because it made California wine famous. But Chateau Montalena was the epicenter of the tasting in Paris.
0: That's right. The, the famous judgment of Paris in 1976 is um, – it was the – the seminal event, if you will, that's in, I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole that surrounds it. But what I will say is that the rest of the world saw that great wine can be made in areas outside of France, essentially.
1: Yeah, you said there's a lot of hyperbole. But let's let's not mistake that this really, when you say seminal moment, it shook the wine world to its core that this young upstart, California, sure. and even a younger upstart, Chateau Montalena, would be making one of the finest Chardonnay wines in the world.
0: It was definitely a surprise, but if you'll recall, there was a grand total of one reporter at that, right. <laughs> at that famous event, George Tabor. And um, so it took a while. It took a while for that to, to disseminate. And I think there's still – it was a one-page write-up in Time magazine. And but by the time people started to, I think – People learned about it, and they grasped what the implications were. Then things really began to take off, not only in America, uh, in California specifically, but around the world. Australia, New Zealand, right. South America, South Africa, all these wonderful places now that produce amazing wines. The quote-unquote new world. The new world. Right. So what's been
1: going on at Chanto Montelena since, you know, uh, 17 – I mean, sorry, 1976. <laughs> I was going to say 1776, <laughs> but I don't think uh, you guys have been making wine that long. Not that long. Yeah, but uh, since – 1976, you've come on board in 2008. What are some of the changes you've seen? What are you personally involved with now?
0: Well, I'd say that one of the things that makes Montalena amazing is that for a winery that has so much history, and we have so many um, accolades over the years, this is one of the most forward-looking brands, uh, I think, in the entire valley, if not the entire world. My boss, Beau Barrett, our CEO, has been with the winery since you know 1970, the first vintage 1972, the first vintage of the modern era. And he's really cultivated this culture of intellectual curiosity, of drive, of inspiration, of exploration. And so whereas so many other brands and other labels may look back to these, you know, the golden era of the 1970s and 80s, Montalena is all about charging forward and staying in the lead. And how do we do that? Well, we use our history, we use our experience that have gotten us to this point, and we leverage that to make good decisions going forward. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that there is no recipe in any of the wines we make. I mean, people ask me that a lot. Do you have a style profile? Is there, is there a recipe that every year we do the exact same thing in our Chardonnay and Cabernet? And the answer is no. We're given the creative freedom to be able to reinvent these wines every year. I mean, the parameters are there in terms of the wines have to be delicious, right? Yep. And they have to age. But for us, it's we have those two goals. The wines have to be – they have to – well, we want you to finish the bottle, right? And then if you do want to lay that bottle down for 30 years, it has to be able to do that too. Outside of that, there isn't really much else. So talk about this wide open chessboard, so to speak, of you know tens of thousands of decisions over the course of a wine's life that we make to be able to reach that goal.
1: That's a pretty tricky thing though, Matt. I mean, making a wine that you can enjoy today as well as you know having some ageability as you said laying it down for 20 25 30 years and full disclosure I actually have three boys born in 93 95 and 97 and there is a case of Montalina for each of them from those three years so you're a good dad <laughs> yeah I tell you what I'll give you their email you can tell them I'm a good dad. <laughs> um yeah they know but the 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 we'll talk a little bit about vintage specifics in in a minute but um you know I believe in this I really do believe in being able to enjoy a wine now, as well as watching it evolve over a period of time, sort of like your children. Sure. And so far, so good. I'm pretty, <laughs> I think they're pretty good vintages, my kids. So um, uh, how do you do that? How do you achieve that balance between, yeah, in, uh, today's enjoyment and tomorrow's
0: enjoyment? It's There really aren't very many food products, if you think about it, that actually do get better with time. There's maybe some you know fancy French cheeses and you know Twinkies do stay the same for millions of years. I'm not going to put French cheese down not for there, no. years. <laughs> But so we are in kind of a, a strange world, right? Where people do expect these wines to not only be amazing upon release, um, but they do have to age and they do have to get better. And, and that's where the perspective comes in. That that's where the understanding of not only the site but also the history in terms of you know how vintages develop, and then the science gives you the the why. So we talked about UC Davis before. UC Davis doesn't really teach you how to make wine. It teaches you to understand the basic building blocks minus the magic. And that's how, when we think about a vintage, we look at, well, what did the weather give us? You know, what, what was it like out there? And that's that's the grape growing side, and that's really important. And then we bring it into the winery, and we taste through these wines, and we think about, well, what's the potential here? Where do we want this to go? And we make decisions there, but it's forecasting out. So when we're, like, I'll be making the blend of our uh, 17 Estate Cabernet uh, this month, get bottled in August. And I'm not thinking about what this wine's going to taste like when it gets released. I'm thinking about what's this wine going to taste like in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. That's wow. the perspective. It's the long game that you have to have.
1: So, have you had any particular vintage of Montalena that maybe. With, let me put it this way Is there a vintage of Chateau Montalena that's really surprised
0: you where you went, wow, that went longer than I thought it would? Or. Maybe even the opposite. I think the wines definitely evolve and change, and I'd like to say that we're we're really excellent prognosticators. What did uh, what did Yogi Berra said? He said that um, it's uh, predictions are difficult, especially ones about the future. I probably right. I probably butchered that. <laughs> But it's for us, It's there are those vintages, and all we can do is we, we stack the deck in our favor. So we farm well. We understand the potential of the vintage. We understand the basic chemistry of what causes wine to age, and we do our best to hedge in that direction. But sure, there are certain vintages where you just don't know, and you say we do everything we can, and that's where the magic comes in. That's where the luck comes in, whatever you want to describe it or however you want to describe it. Uh, the 2011 Chardonnay is a great example of that. That was a, a late vintage in general. That was a vintage that was widely poo-pooed by the right. by the you know the wine cold right. It, it was Austere, cold. It was a different. Right. It was a difficult vintage. Those are the ones we love, by the way. Those are our favorites because those are the ones we get to actually you know show your chops. And I remember we, we started picking that Chardonnay, um, you know, a month later than normal. And at that point, you don't know what you're going to end up with. And I remember bottling it. And this wine was it was very primary. It was very fruity, but it was somewhat closed. And we thought, well, everything that we've done up until this point is is excellent. Now it's up to, to nature to be able to to take this bottle and, and continue its life uh, going forward. And we, um, incidentally, we, we've re-released that wine back into the market, even in here in D.C., and so it's available along with the current release Chardonnay, and it might be one of the best Chardonnays we've ever made.
1: All right. You know, listen, folks, uh, you're going to be running to the store after you're this <laughs> podcast. Get it while you can. That's right. The 2011 Chateau Montalina Chardonnay. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, my One of my favorite uh, experiences was recently I had an 86 Montalina out of Magnum, mmm and, you know, 86, that's, that's a long time for a California cab mm-hmm. to, to roll. And it, it was stunning. Those so.
0: those, uh, those droughty vintages are, are really special. And you asked, the, back to your question before, about, you know, how do we know? Well, you have vintages like 86, 87, 96, 04. Those are all very concentrated drought-driven vintages. And so when another one of those comes up, which inevitably will, 2015 is a great example of that, uh, we have an idea of, well, what worked? What didn't? How is this wine going to develop? What could we do better? I'd say that's the other important part about this job here is I'm probably the most self-critical person you'll ever meet. When I taste through something and people are like, oh, my gosh, that's so great. Or, you know, wow, how did you do that? I'm thinking, wow, I could have done this a little bit better. And I think you need to have that perspective as well. The wine can always get better and it needs to get better.
1: So one of the changes that's going on at Chateau Montelena that I read about in your bio is that you're spearheading the largest vineyard replant and design in the winery's history. What, yes. What's going on? Oh, good. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> the bio didn't lie. So, well, what's going on with that? What, uh, what was the impetus behind this? Was there phylloxera, or was it just time to start changing some things over? Are there better root stocks available now? What's What's going on in the vineyard that, that you're excited about at uh, Montalena?
0: So this is another example of just, you know again, we're, we're playing the long game. Vineyards, typically, the lifespan of a vineyard can be anywhere from 15 to 50 years. Sometimes we even hear of these vineyards that have been around for 100 years. But for us, um, the, the Bordelais have a saying where that um, you don't really know your piece of ground until the third planting. And we had our our first planting on this property was in the 1970s. We had another round of plantings in the 90s and early 2000s. And now we're getting into the third planting. And so now it's not as simple as drawing out rectangles from farmable blocks. Now we know – all the different soil variation. Now we know the new root stocks, we know all of the new clones that are out there. And it's a much more integrative approach where you know we're shifting all of our rows that used to be perpendicular to the to the road because it's easy to drive a tractor in. We're now shifting them to 22 and a half degrees east of north because we know that solar noon in Calistoga at the end of July, that you know the hottest day of the year. The sun sits at a certain spot in the sky, and we want that sun shining right down on the top of our canopies, not on our fruit. And so we won't get sunburned that way. So, I mean, it's all of these decisions that's a combination of just really um, significant and detail-oriented experience but also understanding the science and what's new out there and embracing it.
1: I, I wish the people on the podcast could actually be seeing Matt gesture with his hands the, the sun <laughs> shining down on the grapes a lot and, of you know, gesticulation you know, a lot of gesticulation there that's great um two two other quick questions before we we get into the tasting portion of our podcast which i'm always excited about getting great to. but uh you know you mentioned beau barrett mm-hmm. earlier and uh, his lovely wife heidi yes two pretty is you know famous very famous uh personalities well deserved yeah well deserved absolutely and uh um, you know, I can't wait until the restraining order that uh, Heidi has goes <laughs> off or burns off. Uh, no, I've actually had the pleasure of having dinner with both of them. I've had the pleasure of actually being a, a judge at the international wine competition with with Heidi. And wow, that's, amazing, you know, amazing! So, what's it like? You know, I mean, you
0: know, I, I personally, I don't think I could handle that kind of pressure. Well, it's it, they're obviously very, very different people, and I think that's what makes them so unique. Um, she, uh, Heidi doesn't have anything to do with Montalena directly, but I will tell you that she she gives me advice, and she gives great advice. She was one of the first uh, winemakers I met uh, when I took over at Montalena who encouraged me, and I, her words were to, to paint with the entire color palette. Think outside the box. I mean, you have to know what's inside the box before you can think outside it. But if you look at what she does and the wines she makes, she takes this this long view where every option is exhausted. And I think I admire that about her so much, just her drive towards perfection. And uh, that's something that I've really incorporated into into the way I do things. Bo is, and in so many ways, he's kind of like Yoda. He has this, uh, <laughs> he has this very. He says very, you know, subtle things that reverberate in your mind, and you think about them two days later, and you're saying, "Oh, I get this now." But. They, they take very different tact to arrive at, at something um, that I think we all agree on is, is is the best course for either the individual wines they're working on or at least in our case for, for Montalena. But it's awe-inspiring and I, I just try to soak up as much as I can.
1: Well, I'm just trying to imagine Bo as, as Yoda. <laughs> Harvest next week, you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope they're listening. And <laughs> the uh, then last – you know, we also touched on. You said Calistoga, the magic words, Calistoga. Yes. So, you know, people may not know exactly where Calistoga is in you know, in the in the Napa Valley. So, I want you to tell us a little bit about the location of Calistoga, and then, of course, something that probably not many people realize, but Calistoga actually has its own AVA. It does, and that was kind of a a long runway to get there. I remember getting an email from Bo the day that uh, uh, California. Uh, approved the AVA mm-hmm. and, you know, oh, happy day and the big announcement. So, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit where Calistoga is and, and the significance of the AVA. So,
0: Calistoga sits at the northern end of the Napa Valley. Now uh, The valley is roughly 30 miles long and it's kind of shaped like a banana. And unlike the East Coast here in the Napa Valley, the valley actually technically gets warmer as you head north, as you get away from the San Pablo Bay. We're at the northern end of the valley, but we're not the warmest AVA in the valley. That would be St. Helena to our south. And uh, what you get, mixed makes Calistoga so unique, is that it is the most um, geologically um, uniform, but the most topographically diverse AVA uh, in Napa Valley. So we're all pretty much sitting on bedrock. So this is all volcanic ash, but we have these incredible elevation changes and different aspects that you don't see in the rest of the Napa Valley. And it may seem like I'm, I'm splitting hairs, but in the, the hands of the right grape grower, winemaker, it gives you an opportunity to express something that's incredibly unique that really can't be copied anywhere else. And so the real story, which sounds fake but it's actually true, is that Bo broke his leg skiing. And while he was laid up on crutches, he decided he was going to write the AVA petition, which he did. And he did all of the research on it. He interviewed the geologists. He drew out the maps, everything that the U.S. Tax and Trade Bureau at the federal level asks for. And then the application essentially languished for most of the mid-2000s. And it took quite a few years. I believe it was in 2009, if I recall correctly, 2009, 2010, that the the U.S. Tax and Trade Bureau that uh, oversees the AVA system officially recognized it. And uh, if you want to Talk to the person who knows the most about the Calistoga AVA and why they decided to only go, you know, a thousand feet up a mountain instead of all the way. You can ask Bo Barrett. Uh,
1: you know what? Maybe one day we'll get him in here. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> it would be cool. Yeah. And and I have to say, you know, I as, as I'm fond of saying, I love all God's children. And it comes to wine and it comes to AVA's. But there's something special, at least for me, about Calistoga. And when Calistoga you go there, it is. When you go to Calistoga, it feels like you're visiting Napa 30 years ago.
0: I, uh, this is probably very you know, politically incorrect, but I say Calistoga is the way Napa Valley is supposed to be. Yeah. It just,
1: <laughs> it's, it's lovely. I love the, uh, Calistoga roasters. You know, it great, is know, great place to have you a know, cup of coffee and kick back. And I'm always amazed at just how many winemakers you run into just on the street in Calistoga. Just we're, we're
0: all there. Hanging and, out. and well, Most of the tourists coming up from San Francisco, they get to St. Helena and all the traffic, and they right. turn around and go and back. Say, That's it. That's it. And then the real diehard ones, the ones who are here for, for the wine, they're the ones who come up to Calistoga, and they're the ones that we we love to host yeah. and so love to again, see.
1: You know, listen, if you're listening to the podcast, make your way to Chateau Montelena. It has to be, <laughs> unbiased, it has to be one of the most beautiful pieces of property. There's no question in Napa. It is a beautiful estate. The people are so warm and hospitable. Uh, I I always enjoy my visits. Thank you. Yeah, we really we have a wonderful
0: team, and I uh, I can't get credit for that side of the house by any stretch, but they certainly make me look good, which which I I like. I've I've had
1: over the years uh, the pleasure of getting to know a lot of the people uh, on the uh, in the tasting room, and just you know, it's it's like Norm (laughs) at (laughs) Cheers. Some of you will get that reference. So now, Matt, on to the most important part. The most important part of the podcast, which I call the blind tasting because you and I know what we're drinking. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But the audience can't see it. So tell us a little bit. So you brought two wines for us to try. Yes. Maybe a third if we get time, but two wines for us to try. We're going to start off with the 2017 Chateau Manthelena Riesling. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about the Riesling While I'm, I'm going to go ahead and slurp it while you, uh, while you tell us
0: about Have this. Have at it. So why do we make Riesling? I can tell you there's no money in Riesling. <laughs> the, the reason we make Riesling is because we like to drink Riesling. And we think that it's, you know, people say it's the, it's the king of grapes. Um, when we started making this wine in 1972, the fruit actually did come from Napa Valley. But as with most things, uh, as, as the world progressed and we started learning about you know the right grape in the right place on a very basic fundamental level, we learned that Riesling actually does much better up in Mendocino County. And so we work with a grower up there, a guy named Guinness McFadden. We've been working with him for 25-plus years, and he has an organic 10-acre block up there. That's his Riesling, and he grows it exclusively for us. And it's amazingly delicious. And on this hot summer day, I can't oh. think of a better wine. <laughs> For those of you who cannot see
1: me, I did not spit. No. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, the first thing that comes to mind is that that is mind blowing good. Thank you. That that is a so for a lot of people think of Riesling as sweet. Yes. This is not. This is not. This is bone right. dry. Yes. Bone dry. But there's this juiciness that the acidity is just like I'm, my teeth are rattling. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> just, and, and these beautiful honeyed. Uh, ripe, what I would call more, more stone fruit yes. uh, accents in here. I get a lot of apricots. and yes. uh, you know a little bit of that nectarine pop in there, and this juiciness that. I'm going back in. I think you're writing my tasting notes <laughs> going forward. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm telling you, that is, that is a stunning wine. And really, the thing that really stands out is just that
0: brilliant acidity.
1: Thank you. This. Was it a, a warm vintage? What's- it was. And, yeah. and I
0: think you, you hit the nail on the head with the stone fruit. So 17, warm vintage, especially up in Mendocino. And so for us, the challenge was how do we tease out those really beautiful, ripe notes without sacrificing the acidity that gives the wine it's not only its food-friendliness, but also its longevity. So we work really hard to be able to, you know, articulate that and it really comes out in the glass. What would you like to have this? What would you pair this with? This is a pretty versatile wine in general. Most of the time, so and this wine is available in the Washington, D.C. area. We don't make very much of it. No, you DC's. don't. I remember
1: when it was only available at the tasting. Yes,
0: and, and we don't make any more, even when we did. Like I said, this is one 10 acre block, but it does get out into, into certain markets. Uh, this, this is a great, I mean, gosh, you can do anything with this. People typically like putting this with spicy food. Yeah. So anything, you know, Thai, Vietnamese, it goes great with Japanese food in general. Um, but, you know, this is just, I mean, gosh, you can suck this down pretty much anywhere. This is great, like watching a baseball game even. I mean, it just, it, it's so versatile.
1: Yeah, I think um, I'd probably like to pair this with a hammock. Mm-hmm, there we go.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right up my alley. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the next one, the 2016 Chateau Montalina Chardonnay.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is uh, this is the descendant, if you will, of that famous 1973 Chardonnay that won the Judgment of Paris. And over the years, we've figured out how to really, let's just say we've honed in on the tiny little corner of the Napa Valley that produces this style of wine in the most wonderfully unique and delicious way possible. And so this wine, um, the fruit from this comes from the northwest side of Oak Knoll, which is right north of the city of Napa. And if you understand the way Chardonnay is made, I mean, Chardonnay is made all over California and all over the world, but there are only a few places in Napa Valley specifically, and a few places around the world where you can get a wine that's going to show off just this beautiful California whiteness that you get on the nose, but also has the texture, the balance, kind of the classical sensibilities that allows this wine to age and develop. I mean, it's not unlike the Riesling in that way, but, you know, Riesling is very effusive. Riesling has, has all of these, you know, beautiful esters and aromas that come flying off. Chardonnay can be a little bit softer, and so you have to have a really unique site in order to be able to, to show off something special.
1: Right. Um, somebody once told me that the true measure of a winemaker is Chardonnay because it is is a uh, – talk about a grape that really takes on yes. um, oak or, or anything else a winemaker wants to do to manipulate it. And I will say one of the things that really stands out to me for this Chardonnay, particularly as a California Chardonnay, is just on the bouquet. I'd not the first impression I'm getting is not oak. That's right. It's not vanilla. That's right. It's it's actually more of an
0: apple, a green apple right. you know, um, pop in there, which I love. And that's you know, really emblematic of this vintage. Cooler vintage, so a lot more malic acid in it. And that's that that's that green apple, that pear that, that really right. comes across. Right, right. And, the easiest thing for a winemaker to do is to buy an expensive barrel and put your wine in it. Anyone can do it if you have enough money. But when you do that, you overshadow potentially what is the what are the greatest and most unique aspects of your vineyard site and your vintage. So we keep those inputs very, very low because, again, we have very special sites. And to us, vintage and vineyard are very, very important. Right. And, and again, the, the next thing I notice
1: about this wine, when, when it's in my mouth, and, and this is something I'm pretty picky about. As, a, as I don't know if a lot of journalists are like this. But the first thing I look for in a wine is balance. Mm. And the mouthfeel of this wine is gorgeous. Thank you. Really just uh, m- mouth-filling. We
0: should just stop the recording right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> but right? Am I, yes. am I off base here? I mean, uh, You're absolutely, absolutely right. And, and, it, and it feels to me like it's coating the entire tongue, front to back, I'm not getting any hole in the middle of the palate like I do with a lot of chardonnays. It sort of feel like they give up. They get flat. (laughs) They get flat, Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey, hi, how are you? (laughs) Got to leave. No, this wine is going to, you know, it's come in and made itself comfortable on the couch, definitely uh, in in your mouth. It's going to stay. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely reclining, and the finish is beautiful. And again, there's that acidity, that really nice acidity, getting you know, sort of in the side of the cheeks where it's really kind of giving a, a little bit of a juicy pop, but.
0: Not overly creamy. Mm-mm. No, and, and, and again, that's that's the understanding. If we were to grow this fruit further north where it's warmer, you wouldn't have the acidity further south. There would be so much acidity you would lose your tooth enamel. So mm-hmm. it's it's about you know the right grape in the right place.
1: Well, you are making brilliant wines, thank ladies you. and gentlemen. If you get a chance, please go visit Matt, Chateau Montelena and Calistoga in Napa Valley. Yeah, support a local boy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they see in the big city? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and once again, today we tried the 2017 Chateau Montelena Riesling and the 2016 Chateau Montelena Chardonnay. Matt, thank you so much for coming home, briefly, uh, for a visit and for taking time to meet with me on the Vine Guy podcast. My pleasure, Scott. hope we can do it again. Thanks so much for listening to The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. You can find those wines listed on the episode's description on the Podcast One page. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at The Vine Guy, and be sure to catch my Wine of the Week segments on Fridays on WTOP and WTOP.com. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. Music for this episode is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Until next time, drink well.
2: To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health.